Hello. Hello. Hello, and welcome to Grace Online. We're really excited for you to be able to receive an encouraging word from Scripture today. Because we know that God is already here, and He is ready to be with you. And let's get ready to hear today's message. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. You can use the Bible that's there in the pew, the Bible that you brought with you, or if you're using a phone or a tablet and you go to gracefamily.info, it'll take you right to our scripture. Again, Luke chapter 7. And as you're getting there, I'm going to say something that you know that's stating the obvious, and that is that we find ourselves increasingly becoming a more and more polarized society. And when I say polarized, I don't just mean in terms of a world or even a nation, we're more and more polarized, sadly, even within our own families, even within our own neighborhoods. The last few years of sheltering in place and social distancing have only intensified our innate tendency to exist in echo chambers, echo chambers that reinforce what we already believe to be true, what we already believe to be true in matters of faith, in matters of politics, in matters of science, in matters of education, history, and so on. These days, we tend to be more conscious in labeling those with whom we disagree as our enemies than we are comfortable in acknowledging that those with whom we don't see eye to eye still can be our friends, our family. But even as we continue, even as we continue to make that ill-advised post or response on social media, even as we can't help ourselves from saying out loud that passive-aggressive, judgmental, and perhaps even condemning comment, even as our default is to keep throwing stones, Jesus teaches we should extend a hand, that we should seek to love our professed enemies, that we should seek to love the people we look down on with disgust, the people that we hate, or despise, that we should seek to love the people we are convinced are ruining this world, that are ruining our country, that are ruining our faith, that we should seek to love the people we think are so terrible we can barely stand their presence. You know, Jesus said plenty of countercultural and challenging things, but hands down, bar none, the most shocking command he gave, I think, was to love our enemies. And to be honest, It's hard to find practical teaching in the church on how to love our enemies. Practical teaching on how to love our enemies. Make no mistake, we are well equipped by the church to identify our enemies. In several corners of the church, through so-called Christian sermons, books, podcasts, radio shows, there is no lack of teaching or conversation warning us to beware the people in other political parties who want to take away our rights. To beware the people living other lifestyles who want to destroy our nation. To beware of people with different theological interpretations that are likely to contaminate our faith. Yes, warnings abound. But teaching and conversation about the call to love our enemies, let alone how to practice this, teachings and conversations like that are few and far between. But what about going back to the source? What about Jesus? Did Jesus simply tell us to love our enemies, or did Jesus begin to show us how to do so? Now, of course, Jesus taught us how to love our enemies through his work on the cross. 
But what I'm talking about is besides that grand finale, besides the ultimate gesture of the cross, did Jesus model for us what loving our enemies looks like in our day-to-day, everyday lives? And the answer, as we turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 7, is yes. Immediately after finishing his famous and longest recorded sermon, which included raising the bar beyond the standard expectation of just loving your friends, Jesus takes the opportunity to walk his talk, to show us what it looks like to love our enemy. If your Bibles are open or just keep your eyes on the screen, let's hear from Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It reads, when Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, Don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And to that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This next chapter of Luke's gospel begins by letting us know that what we just heard, this encounter, happened immediately after Jesus finished his most famous teaching. What Matthew calls the Sermon on the Mount, what Luke refers to as the Sermon on the Plain. The focus of that message, again, if you recall, we were looking at it the last couple of weeks, is a detailed series of instructions by Jesus for his would-be disciples of what it means, of what it looks like to follow him. And again, included in that teaching was a specific command, you might recall, to love friend and enemy alike, with a particular emphasis upon doing good to those who hate you, blessing those who curse you, praying for those who mistreat you. And now, as Jesus finds himself back home in Capernaum, and Capernaum was the the primary base that Jesus had for doing ministry, now as Jesus finds himself back in Capernaum, he, he finds himself being asked to practice what he just preached. Because a group of elders, as we heard, from the local synagogue approached Jesus requesting he heal the servant of a Roman centurion who is posted in the town. Now immediately this should strike us as odd because Roman centurions and Jewish elders typically weren't friends. Centurions served in a middling role in the hierarchy of the army of Rome, commanding somewhere between 80 and 100 soldiers. In the military pecking order, centurions were situated below those who led Roman cohorts and Roman legions. During the first century, most centurions served as the primary colonizing force of Rome in Judea and Galilee. So to most Jews, Roman centurions were the enemy the sort of people you opposed or at least avoided 
Roman centurions were not counted among those you tried to help. Now, we might argue, based upon what Luke shares with us, that what's going on here isn't the average situation or relationship between Jews and Roman centurions. I mean, on its surface, after all, it sounds like this Roman centurion isn't such a bad guy. In either financing or allowing the building of the local synagogue, the soldier appears to be more of a friend to the Jewish people. And the Jewish elders who approach Jesus in pleading earnestly for the centurion would appear to have some genuine affection for him. But there's more than meets the eye in this story. A little cultural background is necessary for us to appreciate what's really going on. Specifically, we need to understand how most day-to-day relationships worked in the ancient world. In the Roman Empire, life happened. In the Roman Empire, things got done through what was known as a system of patronage. Things got done, you advanced forward socially, and it all revolved around knowing the right person and negotiating a favor from them. Whether you needed a material good that was rare and hard to acquire, or you sought, to a, uh, sought a specific job or political appointment that was above your station, or even if you wanted an audience with someone beyond your reach socially, you needed a benefactor. Someone who could make that happen for you. This benefactor or patron did you a favor, and in return, you owed them. You became their client, meaning they had earned and you owed them your unswerving loyalty. Clients were expected to publicly honor and promote the generosity of their benefactors as well as, when asked, to perform various acts of service for them. Sometimes there were even go-betweens. Sometimes there were even go-betweens. I mean, perhaps you didn't know anyone who had direct access to what you wanted, but you knew someone, a friend of a friend, who could broker a deal for you. Once this liaison negotiated on your behalf, you'd owe them as well as your benefactor. And in fact, this practice of requesting a favor by proxy was much more common. The logic being, one was more likely to be granted a favor from a complete stranger and get a better deal if that person was approached by someone they knew and trusted, someone with more influence. And understand, this elaborate system of patronage did not exist only on an individual basis. No, quite often the wealthy or the powerful became benefactors to an entire town through their hosting of a public festival or feast or in the funding of the construction of key buildings in the community, say, the local synagogue. And all of this sheds light on what is happening in this encounter. This centurion, who has a beloved servant teetering on the verge of death, has heard about Jesus' reputation as a healer, and so he wants a favor from Jesus. But seemingly, this soldier anticipates Jesus will be more likely to consider, let alone respond to his request, if it came from one of his own people. In seeking a middle party, by the way, this Roman centurion, in seeking a middle party, we learn something about how the Roman centurion understands himself in relation to Jesus. The Roman centurion sees himself in relation to Jesus as an outsider. 
more specifically as a perceived adversary. And so this centurion, as the benefactor of the town, having funded their synagogue, perceives this earns him some honor and loyalty from his clients. And so the centurion calls in a favor in order to request a favor from Jesus. He expects these Jewish leaders, these elders, to intercede on his behalf, to speak well of his generous reputation, and to coax Jesus to responding to his request. So, again, do you understand what's going on here at first? To be clear initially what's happening? This isn't the story of Jesus interacting with two parties normally opposed to each other who defy the odds in becoming friends and now are looking to help each other. That's not what's happening here. No, initially, as it starts out, this is the story of a soldier who, as a benefactor, is trying to work the system to his advantage by pressing his clients to get Jesus to heal his servant. In other words, just so we really understand where we're sitting, in other words, when this starts, this is still the request for help from an enemy, from someone who represents the face and muscle of the occupying, persecuting force of the Roman Empire. An empire, by the way, that wielded power more often through terror than benefaction. An empire that would crucify persons by the dozens or the hundreds along busy highways as a reminder not to step out of line. And yet, despite all of this, and that's why it's so important we understand this background, despite all of this, Jesus agrees to help. Jesus, without hesitation, purposes to love his enemy and immediately heads towards the home of this Roman centurion. Now, if this was not surprising enough, something even more remarkable is about to happen. Something that even amazes Jesus. What happens next is the Roman centurion interrupts the process he has set in motion. Instead of letting the normal wheels of benefaction just keep on turning and cashing in on an owed favor, this centurion sends a second delegation to Jesus, not to make an additional appeal or to negotiate, but sends this second delegation as a gesture of great respect and faith. This centurion who enjoys both a significant level of prominence and power in the community humbles himself before Jesus. And again, to recognize what's going on here, we need a little bit of cultural context. Jesus is on the way. He's going. He's on the way to enter the home of this centurion, to enter the home of an outsider, a Gentile. And according to the purity laws of the Jewish faith outlined in the book of Leviticus, this centurion, as an outsider, as a Gentile, as a non-Jew, was unclean. For a devout rabbi like Jesus to enter the house of a Gentile and eat with him, as hospitality involving food would have been expected, this would mark Jesus as unclean. And again, by the way, this purity line of demarcation once again only further emphasizes the perceived distinction of this centurion as someone not to associate with, as a threat, as an antagonist. Jesus, however, in the name of love and the grace of God's kingdom, already has determined to cross this supposed enemy line. He's on his way. 
But the Roman centurion, the Roman centurion who could have just let things play out, leaving Jesus to deal with the fallout, this Roman centurion who could have given his authority, forced the issue under penalty of arrest or worse, this Roman centurion purposes to spare Jesus the awkwardness, the controversy, the penalty for coming into his home. The Roman centurion underscores this as he explains through his next group of intercessors that he has sent the second delegation not because he is too proud to make his request to Jesus personally, but rather because he feels unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof. Mind you, the Roman centurion pronounces himself unworthy even though the Jewish elders previously have pronounced him worthy. What I'm saying is, in this second move, we no longer have a power play. In this second move, this is no longer about benefaction. This is a gesture on the Roman centurion's part of respect, of humility, and most importantly, faith. For the Roman centurion, in offering Jesus an out for coming into his house, doesn't then cancel his request for healing his dying servant. He doesn't say, you know, let's just call the whole thing off. No. Instead, indicating not only his awareness, but his belief in Jesus' power, the Roman centurion expresses his confidence that Jesus need only say the word and his servant will be made well. And he goes on to explain this conviction about Christ by way of an analogy to his military background, equating his experience, his authority in, having inst in giving instructions and having them carried out by his troops in his absence. The centurion recognizes Jesus' divine authority over illness as being likewise capable of being exercised of healing from a distance. And as we follow this story to its conclusion, apparently Jesus does speak this word from afar. Think about this. Even though Jesus does not go into the centurion's home, even though Jesus never physically touches the dying servant, when this second delegation, even though Jesus never meets the centurion face to face, think about that. When the second delegation returned back to the Roman centurion's house, they find his servant fully healed. This is an amazing story. This story of a miraculous healing, this story that's a sign of the promise of God's coming kingdom, God's reign on earth as it is in heaven, this story is simply astonishing. But the truth is, the healing is not the most surprising part of this story. The healing is not the most surprising part of this story. Hands down, the most surprising part of this story is that Jesus is the one who is amazed. Did you catch that? Jesus is the one who is amazed. Not the Roman centurion, not the delegation of Jewish elders who go to speak with Jesus, not even the ailing servant who is made, who is made well. No, it is Jesus himself who is amazed by the response of the Roman centurion. In fact, Jesus is so taken back by this interaction with this Roman with this Gentile, Jesus declares out loud for everyone to hear that this, this is the greatest expression of faith he has witnessed so far. Actually, if we're paying attention, Jesus says a bit more than this. Jesus proclaims the faith of this enemy of Israel 
surpasses any expression of faith he has seen in Israel. Let that sink in for a moment. That's analogous to Jesus marveling and stating he's witnessed bigger and better evidence of believing and following him outside of the church than inside of it. Could it be possible that Jesus would say that today? Could it be possible that Jesus would herald the practical, tangible way those whom the church labels as enemies of the faith? And by the way, who's on your list? Who's on your list of the enemies of the church? Who, who would, would you not expect that Jesus would remark, that faith is greater than any I've seen in the church? Who's on your list? Atheists? Muslims? Heretics? Progressives? Democrats? Republicans? Is it possible Jesus would herald the practical, tangible way those whom the church labels as enemies of the faith engage and respond to him as over and above what we profess as Christians, as the church? And if you're shaking your head no, let me simply say this. If it could happen here, if it could happen then, then why couldn't it happen again now? Let me put this another way. When's the last time you caught Jesus by surprise? When's the last time that you caught Jesus by surprise? Because that's what happens here. This Roman centurion, this enemy of Israel, catches Jesus by surprise. When's the last time you caught Jesus by surprise? Now, to answer this question, it might help us to reflect on what made the response of this Roman centurion so incredible. So then, what's so amazing about the faith of this centurion? What's so amazing about the faith of this centurion? And we might think... It's the amount of faith this Roman centurion had in Jesus. The amount of faith. In other words, this Roman centurion proved to have more faith in Jesus than anyone else thus far. But this is a very serious misunderstanding on our part. This is not it. All too often, we approach faith as if it were a possession or a goal. We talk of faith in static terms. We talk of faith as something we cultivate. Faith is something we cultivate or maintain by our effort. We speak in terms of affording faith to something else. We give the object of our belief meaning or value by placing our faith in it or behind it. And so we say things, we talk of putting our faith in our investments. We speak of placing our faith behind certain morals and values by which to raise our children. We say we have faith that everything is going to be all right. And if we hold to this view of faith in our relationship with Jesus, then we perceive faith as this ladder that reaches from us to Christ. The more faith we have in Jesus... The higher we climb on the ladder, the closer we are to heaven, 
the closer we are to Jesus, and therefore, the more our faith in Christ rewards us with good things. The answers to our prayers. Hence, when our prayers are not answered, we can often speak of not having enough faith. But the Christian understanding of faith, the way Jesus presents faith, is much different than this. Biblically, faith is not a commodity. Faith is not a goal. Faith is not a possession. Faith is not something we acquire. Faith is not something we accumulate. Faith is not something we amass. Faith is not something we manifest. Faith is not our grasping, our reaching up for God. No. Biblically, faith is presented as a gift. And faith as a gift means it isn't something we possess unless or until God provides it. And while faith needs to have an object, we don't create or validate that object. The object affords the faith that we have. Therefore, the gift of faith is the gift of God reaching down to us in the person, in the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we don't put our faith in God. God puts his faith in us. God reveals himself to us in Jesus Christ. To put this another way, our faith doesn't make God real or true. We know that God is real and true because God reveals himself to us through the gift of faith. Our faith is only possible because of the faith of Jesus Christ. And this reaching down faith, this reaching down faith of God in Christ is always there. It's always available. It's always active through the word and the spirit. What we are invited to, we are invited to respond to the object who affords such faith. We are invited to respond to Jesus. We are invited to participate in, to open ourselves to, to receive the faith that God offers to us. Hence the Bible, hence Jesus calls us to be faithful. Faithful, full of, transformed by the faith of God in Jesus Christ. To be faithful, to be faithful is to yield our sense of power, our claim of authority, and allow the Spirit to move as it will. To allow, as the centurion asks, for Jesus to speak the word. This is what the centurion did that was so amazing. He didn't try to have faith in Jesus. He grabbed hold of the gift of faith that comes by hearing. The centurion completely leaned in, into and trusted what he heard. Think of, again, he trusted what he heard, not even what he had seen. He never meets Jesus personally. He leans into what he hears. He trusts what he's heard. What Jesus was proclaiming and evidencing in both word and deed. The centurion simply and yet fully embraced the promise of the presence and power of the kingdom of God. Not the empire of Rome, but the presence and power of the kingdom of God. The offer of God's mercy and grace. And again, I want us to just ponder how amazing this is. How amazing this is. Because again, step back and think about who we're talking about. This Roman centurion is a man of power and authority. The hierarchical structure 
of the Roman army where he worked every day, the hierarchical structure of where he worked every day was one of control. The centurion controlled his soldiers just as his own commanders controlled him. The centurion could tell those under his control what to do, and they did it, as he talks about. They obeyed without question and without hesitation. And we've also learned beyond his job, which is based on a system of control, this centurion also knew how to work the system, the system of benefaction. He knew how to accumulate more power and influence beyond his army rank by doing favors for others and having them in his debt, even an entire town like Capernaum. But suddenly, this Roman centurion unexpectedly reaches the limit of his perceived authority and power. As a servant who is dear to him becomes deathly ill, deathly ill, well beyond his control to resolve, there is nothing this centurion can do, can say or do to fix this situation. He cannot order his servant to get well. He cannot order his servant to be healed. This servant, this centurion, needs a greater authority than what has been given to him. This servant needs an authority that does not, not an authority that commands the actions of others, but the authority to command life and death. And even though this centurion has never met Jesus in person, from the little faith he is offered, second hand, mind you, from the little faith he is offered second hand, as he hears about Jesus going around the countryside, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and offering signs of God's inbreaking reign. From the little faith he is offered second hand, he recognizes and yields to the divine authority and power being revealed in Jesus Christ. The Roman centurion embraces the divine faith that's extended to us all as he willingly receives the word Jesus has to give to him. He doesn't try to verify or test Jesus. He simply opens up his life. He surrenders control and trusts and acts on whatever Jesus says. And as we see again at the end of this story, that word of God given in the spirit, as is always the case, does not return void or empty. No, the Roman centurion experiences the transformative, life-changing authority and power of Christ. And my friends, so it can be for each of us. Because we have each stood and or will stand in the same place the centurion finds himself. Just as this man of great authority and power reached the limits of his perceived sense of control, so will we. We all want to think we're in control. We all want to think we're in control. We try to act like we have more control over our lives than we do. Deep down, the fears and frustrations that haunt us, they arise from our unconscious awareness that we are not in control. And despite every effort we undertake to maintain our illusion of control, that we have the authority, that we have the power to make our lives whatever we want them to be, 
It all comes crashing down when we confront our limits, when we cannot avoid facing what we cannot control. Life in a broken world inevitably pushes us to the end of our own resources. Our beloved servant who is dying may or may not be an actual person, as it is in the case of the Roman centurion, but we each will one day confront the potential tragedy, sorrow, and loss of someone or something which has cared for and served us. Someone or something to which we have become attached and depend. It could be the termination of a long-standing career. We are the job, but the job is now gone. It might be the reality of a consuming addiction. We're not addicted. We're fine. No, we're not. We can stop anytime we want to until we realize we can't. Until we realize it's eating us alive. It could be the end of a marriage. A marriage that we never envisioned was ever going to end. A marriage that we never thought would be where it is right now. It could be the loss of a beloved parent. A sibling. Or a child. We never imagined the world without them being there. It might be the medical diagnosis. The medical diagnosis that alters our perception of the time we have left. That radically changes how we tell time. We all reach our wit's end. We each will come to the end of our rope. No one, no one, no one is immune from reaching the end of themselves. No one is immune, more, even more than once, from coming to that place where our words carry no meaning, where our actions are no longer effective, where we can no longer do life the way we used to. And strangely enough, perhaps surprising to us, these are the very moments when God's grace, when the gift of faith, the reality of Christ's presence, our ability to hear Jesus clearly, and our capacity to receive what the Word and Spirit offer us, these are the very moments when all of that is most, the gift of faith is most visible and most accessible to us. When everything else has been stripped away, all our posturing, all our pretense, all our play acting, and yet, ironically, however, these also can be the very moments when we most resist surrendering ourselves to Jesus. When we persist despite our sheer exhaustion, despite being burned out, lifeless, and without options, as we persist in trying harder, in trying smarter, trying to bargain and barter with God in order to still hold on to some measure of control over our lives. But the Roman centurion knows this will not work. The Roman centurion knows this will not work. The Roman centurion humbly accepts that willpower and self-determination are not enough. So the Roman centurion yields his power and authority, his sense of control to the faith of Jesus. To Jesus, the embodiment of God's power and authority. 
Instead of looking to command, the Roman centurion awaits a command to follow. But say the word, and my servant will be healed, he says to Jesus. Again, this is what amazed Jesus. Beloved, we may think it's hard to amaze Jesus. But what we learn from what we learn here, it's actually not hard at all. All that's necessary to amaze Jesus is to stop trying to have faith and instead receive the faith he has in us. The gift of faith that God seeks to give us through Christ. What amazes Jesus is when we take him at his word. What amazes Jesus is when we take him at his word. What amazes Jesus is when we lean on, when we rely on what he does rather than what we can do. It's not, again, it's not so much about having faith as it is about being full of faith, faithful, yielding our power and authority and allowing the Spirit to move and to speak the word of God in and through us. And in so surrendering, we shouldn't be surprised if the gift of faith reaches as far as our self-professed enemies. Because the reaching down faith of God, this reaching down faith of God, this reaching down faith of God is offered to us. It refuses to be confined by the usual and accepted boundaries, the lines of separation we create. No, this reaching down faith of God instead purposes to amaze us through its authority and power to transform anyone, anyone, without exceptions. That, my friends, is the gospel. That, my friends, is the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at gracehb.org.